Take your Bibles with me this morning, if you would, and open them to the Gospel of John. Gospel of John into the third chapter. John chapter 3. And as many of you know, over the last several weeks, we have attempted to lay out an understanding, to lay out a foundation, uh, to lay out a, a path of clarity concerning the coming of Christ. What exactly are the implications of Christ coming to, to earth? What are the benefits? What are the uh, outcomes? What's the purpose of Christ leaving His throne room in heaven and taking on flesh? And we've identified that we're doing this because uh, tragically and unfortunately there are too many Christians who don't have a full or confident understanding of the coming of Christ. They most certainly would agree that uh, Christ did take on flesh, Christ was born, they do believe that, but they don't have an understanding enough to share what that message means. And also, there are just, uh, truth be told, young Christians who are too easily distracted by the traditions of Christmas in our culture, and our country, and neglect and forget altogether what the meaning of uh, Christmas is really about, what it means that Christ came for us. But also, we've identified, we're trying to have an understanding of the coming of Christ because there are so many unbelievers around us and among us who hear bits and pieces of the gospel through the Christmas season and truly don't understand it. And we want them to understand it and we want to be able to share it with them and we want to lay out this truth in a plain and a clear way that they may believe in Christ, that this time of the year would be more than just a holiday, a break from work, a time with family, that this time of the year would be, as it is for us believers, a monumental time of rejoicing and celebrating in the love of God. And so that's, that's what we're doing as we have taken the last several weeks and taken a break from the Gospel of Luke to look at the birth, the coming of Christ. Now, let me just recap, if I may, if you'll indulge me for a, a moment and just kind of lay out what we have looked at so far concerning the birth of Christ. We began a couple of weeks ago in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, identifying that the ultimate reason, the ultimate purpose of the coming of Christ was to make peace with God. That we could finally and actually, through Jesus, have, have peace with God. That verse says, therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Christ has brought for us. Uh, Romans chapter 4, verse 25, just the verse above it, says that Jesus came to be delivered up for our trespasses and He was raised for our justification so that we can, through Christ, through faith, be pardoned and forgiven of our sin. That sin obstacle removed and we can now have peace with God. That's a great ultimate gift and blessing of Christ. That you and I, who are by nature separated from God, rebellious to God, sinful at, in our core, can be forgiven, cleansed, and have a relationship with God Almighty. Church, that's, that's what we celebrate. That's what we rejoice in. And that's, what we, that's what lightens up our hearts. Christ has made peace with God. Last week, we also talked about the fact that the coming of Christ also reveals to us the person of God. We looked at John chapter 1, 
specifically verse 14, where the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And that word is Christ. And the word that that John uses, that term word that John uses for Christ, he's communicating to us the full, clear expression and picture of of God. We looked at Hebrews chapter one. Christ is the exact imprint of the nature of God. Colossians chapter one. He is the image of the invisible God. John is trying to stress that to us in chapter one, verse 14. This word, this full and clear expression and picture of God has now taken on flesh. And so that in the coming of Christ, we can know God. We know the clearest picture of God. That in the coming of Christ, God has been revealed to us. And not just revealed to us, but we identified that He's been revealed to us in the most personal of ways, right? He, he actually took on humanity and dwelt among us. He lived among humanity. That we can know God intimately. We don't, we don't just get to know about Him, which is glorious enough, but we can know Him in a relationship because of Christ. We can know His magnificence, that verse. He possesses the Glory, glories of the only Son from the Father. We can see what love God must have to display such glory and yet still come for us. We talked about that the coming of Christ reveals the love of God towards us and that He came full of grace and full of truth. And so that's, that's what we see in the coming and in the picture of Christ. Not only that He brought and makes a way for peace with God, but that He also reveals to us the person of God. This morning, we're going to continue into that theme and we're going to see that the coming of Christ displays the saving heart of God for us. The coming of Christ displays the saving heart of God. And that's what we've been trying to identify and point out all along this month as we've taken time this Christmas season to study and look at and be reminded and refreshed of the coming of Christ. We've tried to stress that it's not just a singular event, but the coming of Christ for us as Christians actually encompasses all of God's salvific plan. It's the picture of all of our salvation. It's what we call or have been calling the first step in the last stage of Christ going to the cross. Here, the cross is in mind as soon as Christ is born. And this event, this coming of our Lord, as I hope we will see in, in just a few short minutes this morning, most clearly displays God's desire to save humanity. Far and above anything else, Christ taking on flesh proves to us God wants to forgive repentant sinners. In church, that's everything to us. That is our foundation. I want to stress to us this morning that we do have a God who actually wants to save sinners. Who actually has in His heart a desire to forgive those who have broken His law. He actually has a desire in His heart to make new creatures out of old sinners. He actually possesses a desire to redeem us. We don't have a God that we have to twist His arm to send salvation to us. We have a God who has freely and passionately sent salvation to us of His own accord. It is the heart of God to save sinners. That is important to us. 
And so just to put that in context, and instead of God declaring eternal war on rebellious sinners, which he most certainly could have, he provided peace through Christ, like we saw a few weeks ago. Instead of God turning his back on humanity, which he most certainly could have, and ignoring us and remaining hidden from us, he instead decided to reveal himself to us through the coming of Christ. And as we'll see today, I I hope and I've prayed, instead of God leaving us dead in our trespasses, he's made us alive together with Christ, Ephesians chapter 2. And that, I want you to know, is the true heart of God, a heart of forgiveness, a heart to cleanse a heart to redeem sinners. So, we will turn our attention to John chapter 3 and we'll see again this, this main point that I want to stress that God wants to extend forgiveness, that God wants to pardon sin, that God wants sinners to come to Him in faith. In fact, you see that and we'll see that in a few weeks. Let me flip over there to Luke chapter 5. I want you to just maybe think on this truth today concerning God desiring to save sinners. In Luke chapter 5, verses 27 through 32, Jesus is eating with sinners and tax collectors and the religious leaders, the Pharisees, are questioning why is He doing that. And Jesus responds and says, it's, it's not those who are well who have a need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Is at the very beginning of the relationship and in the incarnation of Christ. I have come to call sinners. Christ knew who He was coming for, knew what it would take to redeem them, and had a heart and desire to do it. That's what we see today in the coming of Christ. He came specifically to call sinners. So that sinners don't have to run from the presence of God. We can actually run to the presence of God in faith and seek mercy and forgiveness. Church, isn't that everything to us? I mean, isn't, isn't that our evangelism? That those who are around us, our co-workers, our neighbors, our family members, even the people who are sitting among us every Sunday morning can be forgiven through Christ? Isn't that our worship? Isn't that our faith? Isn't that our walk with God? That we are here today because we've been saved by God's grace. So this fact that Christ says, I I know that I've come to call sinners. This fact that God says, "I, I want to extend forgiveness to those who come to me in faith is the truth of Christ's coming. It's the true heart of our gracious, all powerful, almighty God. And that is what I want us to see today as we turn our attention just for a few moments to the most famous verse in all of Scripture, John chapter 3, verse 16. A verse, no doubt, Probably 99% of us have memorized this morning. And yet it's a verse that so adequately sums up the heart of God in saving sinners. That is why it has become one of the most famous verses in all of Scripture. Such a beautifully uh, evangelistic verse, but also such a beautiful verse for us as Christians to rest upon, to stand upon, to, to find refreshment in. So look with me in John chapter 3. <clears throat> Jesus has been having this conversation with Nicodemus, a Pharisee religious leader. He's been telling him up to this point that salvation is a work of God. You must be born again. You can't do that on your own. God must do that for you. He comes down to verse 16, and this is what he says to the Pharisee Nicodemus. He says, 
For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. When we stop and we consider these words for just a moment, church, I hope they change the way you celebrate today. Change the way you celebrate Christmas forever. We know God has a heart and a desire to save, so the first thing we want to look at is His motivation to do so. What is God's motivation to save sinners? Why does God want to? Why does God have the heart to save? And it's pretty plain and clear for us, the first part of that verse. His motivation is His love, isn't it? God so loved the world. But before we consider His love, I want to consider who He is loving. This verse tells us He's loving the world. It's kind of a vague term, a mysterious term. And in Scripture, this term world can be used really in several different ways. It can communicate the created order, the created world. It can communicate the whole of humanity collectively together. It can even communicate the darkness of humanity, the sinfulness of humanity. You'll see passages of Scripture in the New Testament indicating that those who are friends with the world are enemies of God that term is used there as darkness, as sinfulness, but even it can, it can communicate local or relative worlds, depending on the, the context. But we know, most certainly from this verse, Jesus is talking about the whole of humanity. Collectively, God loves humanity. God loves humankind. God loves the human race. And when we begin to pause and consider that truth, we begin to see how remarkable of a truth it, it really is. I want to stop for a moment and give you a brief walkthrough of world history, of human history, in relation to God. And this quick survey, I think, will begin to set in perspective what kind of love we're dealing with that comes out of the heart of God towards humanity. We can begin even in the beginning with the first humans, Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve. And if you know that story, you know that those two individuals broke God's heart when they disobeyed Him. So much so that God had created a special place for them, the Garden of Eden, and He had to eventually kick them out of the garden that He intended them to dwell in. You can continue into Genesis chapter 4. The Lord is further grieved as sin spreads from Adam and Eve to the rest of the human race, and He sees that Cain actually kills his brother Abel and then lies about it, tries to cover it up, and God says, your, your brother's blood is crying out to me. God pictures sin in Genesis 3 and in Genesis 4 as this wretched, disgraceful, shameful event. It cry, Your brother's blood cries to me. We can fast forward to Genesis chapter 6 with Noah and the flood, and God actually says the evil of humanity grieves me to my heart grieves me to my core. This, this world of people, this human race has grieved God because of their sin. Even fast forwarding through the Old Testament, we see Israel decides to try to be like the rest of the nations. God has desired for them to be set apart as His holy chosen people, and yet they want to be like the rest of the people. That's what they say. We want to be like other nations, so God give us judges like the rest of the world. Or eventually they're going to say, God, give us kings like the other nations around us. We want to be like the world. Essentially, they're rejecting God as their judge, rejecting God as their king. God wants to have a 
personal relationship with them and yet they want to be like the world. We see throughout the Old Testament and even today, humanity is so prone to chase after idols. We, we fashion idols so easily. Humanity is prone to chase after false gods. That's why we pray for unreached people groups every Sunday morning because they are worshiping some false god that humanity has fashioned. Humanity so quickly pursues after immorality. Ephesians chapter 4 talks about humanity being greedy to practice every kind of impurity, greedy for every kind of immorality. Humanity can't get enough immorality. The New Testament points out quite clearly that most of Israel and most of the world killed almost all of God's appointed prophets. Those individuals who were sent to proclaim the will and nature of God. Such a blessing to humanity. And yet the world and, and the human race will rebel in such a way that they'll kill almost all of them. Over and over we even see this in our own life. We're prone to reject all of God's ways and all of God's words for our own interest, aren't we? Isn't that at our core? We can look through the Bible characters that we know so well in the Old Testament, even those that God loved and God used. They were at some point and even multiple times recorded as disobeying God and choosing sin over God. We can talk about Abraham who lied about his wife Sarah and let her become married to an Egyptian pharaoh. And then furthermore, Abraham's going to sleep with Sarah's servant, Hagar. We can talk about David and his adulterous relationship with Bathsheba. We can talk about Solomon who pursued God's ways for uh, exploring the things of the world. Talk about Jonah who ran from God and didn't want to obey God when he was called out to serve the Lord and he still didn't want Nineveh to repent. We can talk about Noah who got drunk. Moses who disobeyed to the point where he didn't get to see the promised land. Aaron, the first high priest who led the people to make a golden calf idol against God. Talk about Samson who was promiscuous with women. John the Baptist, greatest man who ever lived according to Christ, who even had his doubts. We can talk about even the disciples who were stubborn, ignorant, and cowardly until the Holy Spirit came. And even then they were prideful and struggled with denying Christ. We can talk about the wars that we see in the world today, the injustice and human trafficking that we see today, the cruelty that we see today in slavery. We can talk about our own backyard, our culture, the redefining of marriage, the redefining of morals, the complete rejection and disregarding of God's law. Church, it's not hard for us to take a quick survey and see that every human being is prone to rebel against God. Prone to disobey God. Prone to reject Him for themselves. Prone to go against all that He has set up in creation. Even trying to change the definition of creation itself. And church, we need to understand that is such a cosmic act of treason, isn't it? To look at the most powerful being to exist and disobey Him. It's the height of ignorance and arrogance and foolishness. We as humanity are so clearly known throughout Scripture, throughout experience, to trample against the words of God, to spit in His face with disobedience, to spur His name, mistreat His servants, on and on and on, and pursue selfishness rather than holiness. 
That's the nature of the world. That's the nature of humanity. And so now we must ask, what kind of love are we dealing with that would love those kinds of people? What kind of love are we talking about? And what kind of love has to flow from the heart of God to love such a people who are totally against everything that He's about? God has so graciously laid out protection. God has so graciously laid out His Word. God has so graciously laid out instruction. And humanity has decided to go their own way. That's the, the cycle fault in the book of Judges. Each man did what was right in his own sight and forsook God. And yet, we find Jesus say to this Pharisee, God loves this world. And He's not talking about the created order. God loves these people. God loves humanity. God loves His creation. In fact, Nicodemus, God loves you. You have been a hypocrite, Nicodemus. You have led the people astray. You've put extra burdens on the people. You're all about your traditions now instead of the Word of God. You're pursuing your own self-righteousness instead of true righteousness. And you've totally neglected God in your life. You're a whitewashed tomb. You look good on the outside, but on the inside you're full of dead men's bones. And yet, God loves you. What kind of love, church, are we dealing with in John 3.16? Let me tell you, it is a different kind of love. It is a unique kind of love. It is a complete, perfect, and pure kind of love displayed in the coming of Christ. It's not some shallow love, church, as so many people think. It's not some shallow love that is fragilely swaying between hate and love. Like God is going to tip over the edge if we do one thing wrong this is a deeper kind of love this is a love that has roots this is a love that is divine you even see it in the language of john three sixteen. jesus doesn't just say god loved the world he's trying to be emphatic about it god so loved the world is a, a little two-letter word there simple word that word so it's communicating to us this extravagant depth of God's love. The sincerity and genuineness of God's love. God doesn't just love humanity. God so loves humanity. It's emphatic. It's pure. That's why we want to call it a, an otherworldly kind of love. A, a supernatural kind of love. A, a divine kind of love that is so far beyond emotion or feeling. It is a love of commitment, a love of faithfulness. It is love in its truest existence from the God of love. And I do want to point out also, it's not a love that's forced, is it? It's not a love that's coerced. It's not a love that's manipulated. It's not a love that's even necessary for the existence of God. It is a pure, free kind of love given to undeserving people, unlovable people. That's the kind of love we're dealing with. It's not like you and I have earned the love of God, have we? God loved us when we were unlovable, church. That's the kind of love we find in John 3.16. It's a love that is unmerited. 
and unconditional. Extended to not the righteous, sinners. It's an amazing kind of love that we find and it's, an, it's a love that in, according to this verse is going to be expressed clearly in, in two ways. So we ask, what's, what's the motivation for God's heart to save sinners? His motivation is His love. Nothing that you and I have done, nothing that you and I will, will do, nothing that we're going to earn. God's desire to save humanity comes from His own love. The second thing I want you to notice from this verse this morning is God's initiative. We know God's motivation is His love. Now we see that His love is displayed through His initiative because God is the one who takes the first step, right? If, if you doubt God's love, if you're plagued with, with doubting and struggling God's love towards you, let, just look for a moment at what God offered up to prove His love to humanity. What God was willing to give. And, and it's His Son. And it's God's gift. It's God who took the first step, right? God who took the initiative to save mankind. So it's not just that God alone was motivated to save, it's that God alone was, took the initiative to save. God was motivated. God was the one who took the initiative. God is the one who made the sacrifice for humanity. Paul elaborates on this in Romans chapter 5. I just want to flip over there and read it because Paul says it far better than I ever could. And he talks about this idea in Romans chapter 5, verse 6, 7, and 8 that it's, it's such a magnificent thought and truth that God, that Christ, would die for sinners. And he says in Romans chapter 5, verse 6, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. God died for the ungodly. He died for those who were at the very opposite of who He was and who He is. Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 7, Paul's stressing how important this is. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. Verse 8, But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still opposed, while we were still unholy, ungodly, unrighteous, Christ took the first step. This is the love of God. And it's displayed through Christ's coming. God shows His love for us in dying for us when we were still undeserving. That's the heart of God to save. The fact that we didn't do anything to attract such favor and such love shows us it's the purest kind of love. And we know from Scripture that God has had this desire to save and God has had this plan to send His Son even from the beginning, hasn't He? It's seen as early as Genesis chapter 3 and the consequences being pronounced to Adam and Eve and the serpent. Chapter 3, verse 15. You're going to bruise His heel, but He's going to crush your head. The picture of Christ coming. Christ has promised as early as Abraham, through your offspring will all the nations of the earth be blessed. 
It's promised as early as David, 2 Samuel chapter 7, there's going to be one to rise up, David, that will be a son to me. I'll be a father to him. I'm going to place him on your throne. He's going to rule and deliver my people. The plan of God to send Christ was spoken of by all the prophets. Seen most clearly in our memory verse for this month, Isaiah 9. It's always been in the plan, and it's always been in the heart of God to sacrifice His Son for humanity. Peter will say in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, his first true sermon, his sermon at Pentecost, he'll say this about Jesus. He'll say that He was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. It was a sure and certain plan of God to offer up His Son as a sacrifice for you and for me. It was definite. And it was according to God's foreknowledge. He's always known that He loves the world enough to offer His Son. This puts a, a new perspective on Christmas. I also want you to notice what the verse says this morning, what Jesus actually says to Nicodemus. He so loved the world, Jesus says, that He Gave His only Son. We often focus on the only part to stress how willing God was. I want you to focus on a different word. I want you to focus on the word gave. Because what's so remarkable about that word and about this verse and about the way Jesus uses it is He's using it in past tense. And at this point in time, it's still two years before He goes to the cross. And yet He says to Nicodemus, God has already given His Son. It's as sure as the past. And it's as certain as it's already happened. He can look at Nicodemus and speak of the salvation that's coming through Himself as something that has already taken place. God so loved the world that He already gave His Son. That's a love that's proven, isn't it? That's a love that's undeterred, unmovable, unchangeable. That's a love that is only coming from God. What we know about the, the love of God in saving mankind is that it is a it's a love, it's a desire that could not, would not be stopped by anyone. God had set His heart to save humanity. And there is no clearer picture than Christ coming, God giving His Son. That's what we celebrate. I want to take it a little further for us this morning, and if I can, make it a little bit personal for you. I want you to consider the life-changing impact this has when you realize personally that Christ came for your sin. Every evil desire, every evil thought, every evil word, every, every sinful action, every sinful choice that you and I have ever made, Christ came to take it all, didn't He? Every sinful action and every sinful choice and every sinful lifestyle of those around us, Christ was willing to die for. There's a beautiful word that you need to have in your vocabulary as a Christian. It's the word substitute. Christ was our substitute on the cross. And, and if you don't want to believe me, let me read to you another famous verse of 
scripture found in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. You should already know this verse talking about Christ. Paul says this, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's consider the language of that verse alone. For our sake, your sake, Christ took on sin. And even more than that, God made Him to be sin. God sent Him. God took the initiative. God had the definite plan and foreknowledge to make Christ sin for your sake. What love is this? To look at those who rebel against Him and disobey Him and to say, yet, I'll make my own Son the offering for your sin. I'll make my own Son the substitute for your sin. He is going to live the life you couldn't live. He's going to take your sin upon Himself, die on your cross, be buried in your grave, and raise on your behalf so that you can be with me. Church, this this is love, and this is Christmas, and this is beautiful, and this is life-changing. This impacts us to our core. Every ounce of wickedness in my heart taken and washed by Christ. And I want to point out, like I do so many times, this is not because we brought anything to the table. You realize, don't you, we don't add anything to God. He's as glorious as He's ever going to be and ever will be, even apart from us. We don't make Him more praiseworthy. We don't make Him more worshipful. We don't make Him more perfect or more loving. He's full and absolute and complete in and of Himself. We bring nothing to the table And yet God so loved humanity that He gave His Son for us. Offered His Son up according to His definite plan to be delivered up on a cross for our trespasses. He wasn't tricked. He wasn't manipulated. He wasn't forced or deceived. The very fact that Jesus says He gave His Son indicates that He was a free will offering. Offered freely for you and for me. The third and final thing real quick I want us to see this morning out of this verse is not only God's motivation, not only God's initiation, but God's invitation. Look at the last part of verse 16. Here's God's love displayed yet again. His saving heart displayed yet again. It's displayed in His invitation through Christ that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. That, in and of itself, is a life-changing phrase. Whoever believes in Christ. Whoever comes to God. That's not saying that everyone is saved. That's saying everyone can be saved. There is no limit to how far God's grace can extend in somebody's life and heart. There is no limit how much God wants to save humanity. Anybody and everybody can come to Christ. Whoever believes. So let us never think, let us dare not have the thought that someone is too far gone for Christ. Someone's too wicked to hear the Gospel. That someone won't receive the message of Christ. I'm living proof God saves the wicked. We are living proof God saves sinners. Anybody who comes to Him in faith 
you're not too far gone. You haven't done too much. You haven't crossed the line. The enemy so wants to lead us away as slaves believing that. So wants to confuse and trick the people in our families, the people around us that they've done too much for God to ever care for them. Now this is a different kind of love. And this shows the saving heart of God that anyone can have this kind of life. Also notice the word believe. Whoever believes in Him. It's a word that implies trust. It's a word that implies faith. If you truly believe who Christ is, that He is all that He said He is and did all that He said He did, you're, you're going to submit to Him and follow Him. That's part of truly believing in Him. Whoever has faith in Him, whoever believes in Him, whoever trusts in Him. Paul so, so beautifully defines faith in Romans chapter 4, talking about Abraham. He does it again in Galatians. He says that Abraham believed, had faith, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he simply defines faith in Romans chapter 4 in that Abraham believed that God was able to do what he had promised to do. That's the simple definition of faith. That I believe God will keep His word and that He's able to keep His word. Meaning, anyone and everyone who calls upon the name of Christ shall be saved. Whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. Faith says, I believe God is true to His word and able to keep His word. So I trust Him. Anybody can come to Christ in faith and they will not perish but they'll have life. Eternal life. Sin only leads to dying. The wages of sin is what? Death. That's all it can offer. That's all it can pay. That's all it can give. And too many are down that road traveling the broad path of destruction and they're going down it at a fast, fast rate. But here comes one. That even the wicked's wickedest of wicked sinners can come and, and trust in Him and they'll be taken off the path of destruction and placed on the path of eternal life. No one is too far gone to find life in Christ. No one has made too many bad decisions to have eternal life in Jesus. This is the culmination in the picture of the love of God that He takes those who rightly deserve death and punishment and he plucks them up and says, I will make you new, redeem you, and give you eternal life with me. So you can either unite yourself to sin and perish, or you can unite yourself to the one who lives eternally and have life. That's the picture of the love of God. Not that we have done anything to earn that. Not that we have done anything to manipulate God to give us that. Purely motivated by His love. Church, what kind of God do we have? who has such a saving heart for sinners. We have a perfect, beautiful God. I could not make one up better in my own mind or imagination than the God of the Bible. And here He is, crying out to us through His Son in John 3.16, I so love this sinful, rebellious human race that I gave My Son up for them to be their substitute so that any one of them who comes to Me and believes can be taken out of death and given eternal life. That church is the message of Christmas. That's what we celebrate in the birth of Christ. 
That's what we need to understand. That's what we need to have a full and confident grasp upon as believers so that we can share that message. How many people do you know and how many people will you see today as you meet with your family that needs to know this message and needs you to share it with them? You're going to encounter so many people this week that need you to share this message of Christmas. And how many of you are sitting out here this morning and you know you need to believe this message for the first time. And I mean truly believe it. Truly submit to it. Truly give your life to Christ. You know you're there. We know you're there. Here's the message. You may have rejected God. You may have lived a double life, a lie. You may have, have this huge disconnect between your public church life and your private life. But let me tell you something. God will still save. There are so many of us living testimonies here this morning of that truth. God does love to save sinners. So for believers, we need to share that message. We need to let this message increase our faith, our adoration in God, our worship of God, our devotion to God. Right When this sets into our hearts, don't you want to respond with complete devotion to God? Oh yeah, we do. An unbeliever this morning, you need to let this message soak into your heart that you may be saved for the first time. Praise God that He sent His Son, born of a virgin, born among men, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law. That He might make a people for His own possession. Praise God for Christ. Father, we thank You again for sending Your Son. We thank You again for this verse, Father, that we have read and repeated and heard countless times in our lives and maybe have become callous to and yet is so refreshing to us and so impactful for us, God. It's so meaningful to us. It totally sums up why You came, Lord. It, it totally sums up the Christmas season, the Christmas message. Your love is unmatched, God. Your love is undeniable. Oh, and our great enemy, Father, wants us to doubt Your love, wants to trick us to believe that You love everybody but us, that everybody's good enough for Your love but ourselves. Father, the truth is we're all unworthy. The whole world is unworthy, and yet You so loved this world anyways. What love do You have, O oh God? And we thank You for it. A love that gave Your only Son as definite as creation exists, to be our substitute so that any one of us can believe and be taken from death into life. As Paul says in Romans, let us live and exist as those who have been brought from death to life because of Your Son. Oh God, this message is everything to us. It is what we stand upon what we rest in. It is our shelter, our fortress, our peace and our hope. And nothing of our own doing, only of Your love, You have saved us and secured us for eternity. Thank You, God. And let us praise You accordingly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.